Open up your Bible, the Bible that's in the pew, maybe your phone. And again, if you open up that Bible app under Grace Lutheran, it'll pop right to our scripture today, which is Daniel 6. In the pew Bible, it's page 618. And we are in the thick of this study on the book of Daniel. And if you haven't been with us over the course of the first five chapters, we have watched the mighty Babylonian empire rise and fall. That's chapters one through five. And today, as we get to the arrival of chapter six, Daniel is still in Babylon, but a different government is in charge. If you weren't with us, in chapter two, God gave Nebuchadnezzar, the one-time king of Babylon, this dream that Daniel interpreted. And it was this dream of this giant statue. And this statue represented not only the kingdom of Babylon, but the kingdoms to come. And so in terms of that dream, we are passing from the gold head at the top, the gold head of Nebuchadnezzar's statue, to the second tier, the silver chest and arms. Meaning... It is time for the Medo-Persian Empire, the Medo-Persian Empire. And if you're a geography buff, if you can picture the map in your mind, this empire, the Persian Empire, was an area that formed an arc to the north of the Babylonian territories, extending eventually to Asia Minor, Libya and Egypt to the west, and then to the Indus River and the Aral Sea to the east. So if you kind of even have some, some vague idea of what this, how big that is, the Persian Empire was the largest empire the world had yet seen. And Daniel is a part of it. He now serves under a new king named Darius. And as we open up chapter 6, we're told right at the outset, given the vastness of this empire, and we can picture it, right? King Darius divides the kingdom into 120 different areas. And he appoints governors. They're called in your Bible, satraps. Satraps are just governors. He appoints governors over each area. And then Darius designates three men to serve as the overseers of these 120 governors. Daniel now an octogenarian, and I was, I've been waiting to pull that out, is one of these men. And if you're like, an octo what? Daniel is well into his 80s. That's what octogenarian means. He's well into his 80s, and he's one of these three overseers. And despite being in his 80s, his health and his mental uh, faculties have not diminished in the least. In fact, as we keep reading in chapter 6, Daniel's work ethic and performance are about to earn him an even greater promotion. King Darius is about to make Daniel his right-hand man. He's about to make him his right-hand man until those who are about to be passed over by a foreigner, no less, an immigrant, an outsider, as they refer to him in verse 13 in chapter 6, as one of those exiles from Judah, as those who are about to be passed over have something to say about it say about what's about to happen to Daniel. And so 122 men, that's 120 of the governors, two of the other overseers, 122 men conspire against one man. Behind closed doors, they plot to bring Daniel down. Trouble is, they can't find any charge to bring against Daniel. No dirt, no scandal. God, if we could say that today. No inconsistencies. No weaknesses to expose, save one. Save one. Desperate to take him down, they look to make Daniel a victim of his own devotion. They look to make Daniel a victim of his own devotion. Knowing Daniel would be faithful to his God in all circumstances, they take the law into their own hands and pull a fast one on King Darius. Darius' advisors and officials stroke their king's ego by proposing a new royal decree, a temporary measure. For the next 30 days, directing all prayer solely towards the king. 
worship of anyone else being punishable by death. Come on, Darius. Who doesn't want to be God for a month, right? It'll unify the kingdom. And if it happens to eliminate any disloyal subjects, so much the better. So let it be written, so it is done. And as expected, those who oppose him go and watch as Daniel just keeps right on bending his knee toward Jerusalem, praying to his God. Having spied on Daniel and collecting all the proof they need, 122 men, and if you read it, it literally is 122 men. It's, this is not a small group, man. 122 men spy on Daniel and then make a beeline back for Darius. They move to put their king in check. Hey, uh, Darius, didn't you pass a law about only praying to you? Yes, I most certainly did. Well, Daniel isn't following the rules, and you know what that means. And just like that, Darius suddenly finds himself a victim of entrapment. His hands are tied by his own decree. You might say, well, why doesn't Darius just change the law? He's the king, right? But we're not in Babylon anymore. We're in the Persian Empire. In the Babylonian Empire, the king was law. Nebuchadnezzar, Belshazzar, they were the law. But here in the Persian Empire, the law is king. The law is the law and even the king is subject to the law, not above it, just like everyone else. And so reluctantly, he orders Daniel's punishment. But as he does so, we read in chapter 6 that King Darius is still rooting for the old guy. But all his officials, those 122 officials, the moment that Daniel's thrown into the lion's den, this pit dug into the ground with an entrance to the side for the lions with a huge boulder placed over the top so there could be no escape. The moment that Daniel is thrown into the lion's den to 122 men, he's as good as dead. Or so they thought. I invite you to hear Daniel chapter 6 as we read starting in verse 16. So the king gave the order, and they brought Daniel and threw him into the lion's den. The king said to Daniel, May your God, whom you serve continually, rescue you. A stone was brought and placed over the mouth of the den, and the king sealed it with his own signet ring and with the rings of his nobles, so that Daniel's situation might not be changed. Then the king returned to his palace and spent the night without eating and without any entertainment being brought to him, and he could not sleep. At the first light of dawn, the king got up and hurried to the lion's den. When he came near the den, he called to Daniel in an anguished voice, Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God, whom you serve continually, been able to rescue you from the lions? Daniel answered, May the king live forever. My God sent his angel, and he shut the mouths of the lions. They have not hurt me, because I was found innocent in his sight, nor have I ever done any wrong before you, your majesty. The king was overjoyed and gave orders to lift Daniel out of the den. And when Daniel was lifted from the den, no wound was found on him because he had trusted in his God. At the king's command, the men who had falsely accused Daniel were brought in and thrown into the lion's den along with their wives and children. Heard that. And before they reached the floor of the den... The lions overpowered them and crushed all their bones. Then King Darius wrote to all the nations and peoples of every language in the earth, May you prosper greatly. I issue a decree that in every part of my kingdom people must fear and reverence the God of Daniel. 
For he is the living God, and he endures forever. His kingdom will not be destroyed. His dominion will never end. He rescues and he saves. He performs signs and wonders in the heavens and on the earth. He has rescued Daniel from the power of the lions. So Daniel prospered during the reign of Darius and the reign of Cyrus the Persian. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. With the exception of chapter 3, now that we have six chapters under our belt, with the exception of one chapter, chapter 3, we have observed Daniel in a variety of different challenging circumstances. Coming again to Babylon as a teenager, Daniel has spent all of his adult life serving in the courts of various pagan rulers. And what I'd like to do this morning, given all of that, but specifically from what we have here in chapter 6, I'd like to identify Daniel's defining characteristic for us. I'd like to define it and unpack Daniel's defining characteristic, that which enabled him not only to endure, but to be a powerful witness for the kingdom of God. We're also going to explore why this characteristic, this distinctive trait was so prominent in his life, so central, so decisive in and through his life. So let's begin by calling it out, what it is. Daniel's defining characteristic present throughout his journey of faith in this entire book, but explicitly called out here in chapter 6, comes down to one word, and it's this, integrity. Integrity. The word integrity is derived from the Latin word integer. And in English, integer is defined as a whole number, a complete entity. For those of you who don't remember your high school math, right? An integer is a whole number, a complete entity. The essence of integrity, therefore, is wholeness, of being the same through and through. In a relational, in a practical sense, integrity is being in private what you profess to be in public. There is no discrepancy between what one appears to be on the outside and what one is on the inside. And as we push this definition further, as we kind of unwrap this idea of integrity, when it comes to people, integrity always involves an ethical quality. Integrity, in other words, has to do with moral excellence. It has to do with consistency and honesty. Consistency and honesty without deception or pretense. Consistency and honesty that doesn't vary according to one's circumstances or preferences. Integrity, in other words, is a righteousness of the heart that is again expressed not just with words, but through actions. Given this definition, I think we can all agree that integrity would appear to be an endangered character trait these days. If we pay attention to news headlines or even if we just listen more carefully to the conversations in our neighborhoods, we cannot help but notice how compromise eclipses consistency when it comes to our ethics and our values. Compromise eclipses consistency when it comes to our ethics and our values. Moral, judicial, political, and spiritual compromise has become so commonplace, we've come not only to expect it as a society, we're growing more and more accepting of it. We don't completely believe anyone anymore, right? I mean, we don't actually believe anybody anymore. Everybody lies. Everyone has their price, and therefore everyone can be bought. And so we find ourselves waiting not to be disappointed. We're not waiting to be disappointed. We find ourselves waiting to be affirmed in our cynicism that no one really walks the talk, 
that no one fully stands and consistently lives and is willing to sacrifice for the sake of what is good, right, and true. And then we have the witness of Daniel. The witness of Daniel. I don't know if this, you caught this by how I described this in the beginning or how we've seen him all along, but get ready for this. Daniel was a politician. Daniel was a politician. He spent his life working in government service. And politicians and the word integrity are not often found together. But notice here in chapter 6 what is said in verse 4. If you have your Bible open, you can read it. If not, I'm going to read it for you. Verse 4. At this, the administrators and the satraps, the governors, tried to find grounds for charges against Daniel in his conduct of government affairs, but they were unable to do so. They could find no corruption in him because he was trustworthy and neither corrupt nor negligent. Try as they might, Daniel's enemies found nothing wrong in his life. He was a person, as we like to say, who was above reproach. Now let's pause for a second. Does this mean Daniel was perfect? No. This doesn't mean Daniel was perfect. Daniel wasn't perfect. What it means when we talk about integrity is Daniel was wholly centered in his devotion to God. Daniel was consciously consistent in abiding in the Lord's presence. His focus, his heart, his priorities were undivided. He didn't always get it right. He wasn't perfect. But everything he said and did, Daniel did unto the Lord to glorify God by attempting to do right by others. That's integrity. Integrity, I'm drawing this out for you. We've seen it throughout this book, but especially sort of narrow it in here. I'm drawing this out because integrity was not just Daniel's defining characteristic as a witness for the kingdom of God. He's not the exception, he's the rule. My friends, integrity is to be our defining trait as witnesses for the kingdom as well, as followers of Christ. Listen to Paul's words written much, much later when in his letter to the Philippians chapter 2, he writes that as children of God, we must become blameless and pure without fault in a crooked and depraved generation in which we shine like stars in the universe As through our integrity, that's my addition, we hold out the words of life. Through our shining, through our integrity, we hold out the words of life. Philippians chapter 2. My friends, by the grace of God, the goal we are to reach for isn't perfection. It's not about being perfect. But it is about being whole. Wholeness. Our trajectory is to become increasingly and exclusively centered in Christ. And that's why when you read Paul in the New Testament or Peter or John, you hear things like we are to gain the mind of Christ. We are to root ourselves more and more into the heart of Christ. We are to think and to speak and to act in the name of Jesus, which is to, means we're to act more and more like Jesus would. That's the goal. That's the trajectory. That's what God purposes for us by his grace to bring in and through us, through our lives. The Christian author Warren Wearsby once said, two forces are at work in our world today. Two forces are at work in our world. On the one hand, God is putting things together. On the other hand, sin is tearing things apart. God is putting things together. Sin is tearing things apart. And he goes on to say, God wants to make integers. Remember how I defined integer? 
Wholeness, completeness, the same through and through. God wants to make integers. Satan wants to make fractions. My friends, as we sit and meld a little bit in this this idea, this trait, this characteristic of integrity, are we becoming integers? Are we becoming less divided and fractured as people, as individuals? Are we becoming less divided and fractured as a community? Would we be found, as Daniel was, trustworthy if others sought to make a case against us? If others looked into our lives, would we be found trustworthy? Are we, as Daniel was described, neither corrupt nor negligent? Are we neither corrupt, and corrupt has to do with being explicitly doing harm. Are we neither corrupt nor negligent? Negligent meaning we're implicitly doing harm. Are we neither corrupt nor negligent? In everything we say and do, are we becoming, not arrived, but becoming more and more aligned in glorifying God by doing right by others? This is the question of integrity. This is the test of integrity. And, and broadly speaking, as we just continue to unpack this idea, there are two kinds of tests in life to one's integrity. Two kinds of tests. The two tests are prosperity and adversity. Two tests to our integrity, prosperity and adversity. And of the two, I often think prosperity is the more difficult. Daniel experiences both just in this chapter alone. But let's talk about the test of prosperity. When we go through difficulties, it's a natural thing for us to cling on to God and ask for his help. However, when when things are going well, when we prosper, when we are content, we tend to become self-sufficient, right? Or at least we believe we are self-sufficient. We start to pat ourselves on the back. When everything is going well, we can be tempted to avoid the complication of change. I mean, none of us like change. We can be tempted when everything's going well to avoid God's desire for us to continue to grow and mature in our relationship with him and with others. And so when things are going well and we don't want to deal with change, it can be very, very easy not to ask, not to notice, or just to plain avoid seeking God's desire and will for us, right? Here in chapter 6, Daniel faces that test of his integrity. At the start of the chapter, Daniel is prospering, right? He's prospering. He's about to become Darius's right-hand man. And remember, he's in his 80s, right? So he has spent most of his adult life as a bold witness for the kingdom of God. That is a long track record of public and devotional service. 80 years as a bold witness for the kingdom of God. So when the new law comes that makes prayer to the Lord illegal, let's be honest, Daniel could have played it safe, right? Daniel could have played it safe. I'm not even saying he could have started praying to Darius. No, he could have played it safe by just changing his prayer routine so at least it looked like he wasn't breaking the law and thus he could have avoided being arrested. I mean, it was only a 30-day decree after all, right? It's like 30 days, what's that? That's like nothing. 80, 80, 80 plus years living, what's 30 days? The Lord knew where his heart really was, right? He knew that he was devoted to God. So what did it matter? What would it matter if he just altered the time of his prayers? What would it matter if he just closed the door? What would it matter if he just shut the windows? What would it matter if he just talked to the Lord silently while he was walking to work? But no. In the midst of his prosperity, Daniel instead shows how integrity is about consistency. Living rightly, devoted to the Lord, regardless of one's circumstances. 
My friends, to change how we live with God, with others, once prosperity comes, if we do that, we are demonstrating our posture, our behavior was not sincere or or authentic. But instead, it was manipulative. Only to get from God and from others what we wanted, and we weren't really interested in having God shape how we think, how we speak, and how we act. Daniel's integrity in the midst of his prosperity reflects not only his ultimate priority was to glorify the Lord, but it also reflects his awareness that it was the Lord and not himself who was the source of all his blessings. It was the Lord and not himself. Prosperity can test our integrity, but adversity can as well. Adversity. Life's going well. Life's going well. Our health is good. We have a job. Our children are doing well. Our family is getting along. We like our neighbors. Oh my gosh. All is right in the world. And sometimes prosperity doesn't have to leave us, lead us to, again, forsake God. Sometimes because we're prospering, right? We feel so blessed. We're even more centered on God. We're blessed. So we're centered on God. We're praising him. We're attentive to his presence and his will. God is good all the time. And all the time, God is good. And then something happens. Something outside of our control. Try as we may, and we try hard. We can't fix it. And so we're frustrated and we attempt, man, we give a lot of brain power to figure out or justify why. Why has this bad thing happened to us? But to no avail. From our perspective, and it builds, right, it's just unfair. It's unfair. Adversity tests our resolve, our trust, our dependency on the Lord. For many, adversity is the breaking point of their integrity. Some walk away from God. Others drift away gradually. I told you we see Daniel facing both tests to our integrity in this chapter. We see it in prosperity, but then when the law gets passed, Daniel suddenly finds himself in a situation of adversity. But I want you to notice in this story that when that moment of adversity comes, Daniel never complains. He never cries out of unfairness. I mean, it's not, it's kind of obvious to everybody that Darius just got duped, right? He doesn't want to do this. And Daniel doesn't plead for mercy. Isn't that interesting? He never pleads for mercy. Daniel never turns to the 122 men who have orchestrated this and says, you're going to get yours. Daniel repeatedly throughout this story, this book, but again in here in chapter 6, repeatedly faces adversity but refuses to let his integrity be compromised. He refuses to let adversity change who he was. Or more significantly, he refused to let adversity change his perception, his perception as one of God's own, the Lord's beloved. See, this is important. Daniel's integrity was not of his own making. Uh, Maybe at this point as we kind of continue to unpack this, we sort of have a worldly understanding of integrity and then there's a biblical understanding. Daniel's integrity, this thing that we're lifting up and looking at, seeing that God wants to develop in ourselves, it was not of his own making. Daniel's integrity grew out of God's presence and activity in his life. It was about God's presence and activity in his life more than any personal charisma that marked him. 
So again, to underscore this, biblically, integrity is not about mustering up one's own values, convictions, and character. That's a worldly definition of integrity. My integrity, according to the world, is what are my values, what are my convictions, what's my character, and I remain consistent through and through to that. That's not a biblical definition of integrity. Biblically, integrity is being true to the values, the convictions, and the character of God. Biblically is integrity. Integrity is being true to the shalom, the wholeness, the rightness, the holiness, the goodness of the person of God in whose image you have been created. Integrity is reflecting not one's character apart from Christ. Integrity is about holding on to one's identity in Christ that you have been bought and claimed by the cross of Christ, that you have been sealed and adopted by the Holy Spirit, and nothing can alter that declaration. Nothing can separate you from the love of Jesus Christ. And we see this contrast in integrity under fire and integrity that folds in the contrast between King Darius and Daniel in this story. King da when Daniel is dropped in the lion's den, we, re we saw this, King Darius is beside himself, right? He's beside himself. He, he can't settle down. He cannot be at peace. Dan King Darius is beside himself because his integrity is shot. And his integrity is shot because he gave it away. His integrity is shot because he gave it away, not for five minutes of fame, but for 30 days of divinity. But the irony is, he's powerless even though he's the man in charge. You get the humor in this, right? He's powerless even though he's the man in charge. Apparently, being God of the month isn't all it's cracked up to be. Because he's God for the month, but it ain't worth much because he can't do what he wants to do. Darius can't do what he wants to do. He can't do anything for Daniel except sign his death warrant. You have to appreciate the irony of this. There's where integrity folds. And that night, Darius, we're told, doesn't sleep well. And the scriptures don't say this. This is Pastor Chris projecting, but I think I'm right about this. We're told Darius doesn't sleep a wink, but I'm going to tell you, I believe because of his integrity, his relationship with the Lord, Daniel, despite being within a pause reach, Daniel, despite being one devouring pounce away from a pride of lions, sleeps like a baby. And the next morning, certainly, as he comes out of the lion's den, much like his flesh, his integrity remains untouched. In fact, the coda for this chapter, you can't miss it, is Daniel's witness for the kingdom of God grows even stronger as he comes out of the lion's den. Having previously impacted the Babylonian Empire through the last five chapters, Daniel's integrity now makes its mark on the Persians as King Darius recognizes not only a higher law. You might ask yourself, Darius couldn't change the law before. Why all of a sudden now does he change the law? Because he's confronted a law that's higher than himself higher than his empire. He's confronted a higher power, and so he declares to all the known world, this is the superpower at the time, to all the known world, this is the living God. And he endures forever. And his kingdom will not be destroyed, and his dominion will never end. You know, we're so used to this story. We learned it in Sunday school. We've heard it time and time again. It's like one of the most beloved stories in the Bible that because we know this story so well, we tend to focus on the visible victory. That sort of is like the point for us, right? That Daniel came out of the lion's den unscratched and unharmed. And that's true. But here's the thing. By focusing there, we miss 
where the battle for integrity is fought and where the battle for our integrity is won. And what I'm saying to you this morning is the real victory for Daniel was achieved before he ever went in the lion's den. The battle for Daniel's integrity was fought and won the minute Daniel put his face towards Jerusalem and prayed to God and not Darius. Once Daniel won there, the real lions didn't matter. We think the miracle was that Daniel survived a night with the lions. And that was a miracle. But my friends, the greater miracle was that was his integrity remained even though his life was on the line. Daniel knew who he was. He knew who he belonged to. And therefore, facing the lions, facing death could not, and it did not, defeat him. This is important for us. This is important for us to hear because what I want you to understand is our integrity that God seeks to develop in us. Our integrity stands not on any assurance that we will always remain unoppressed or even untouched. Are you hearing me, church? I don't want you to walk away and hear something that the word of God does not say. Our integrity that God seeks to bring out in us does not stand on any assurance that we will remain unoppressed or even untouched. Think about it. Daniel's integrity didn't prevent him from being attacked or thrown into the lion's den. Daniel's integrity derived from his conviction that the Lord was with him, that God went into the lion's den with him. And my friends, the reality of the cross is our assurance that God is with us too. That Jesus has silenced the devil who himself roars like a lion and seeks to devour us. That's from 1 Peter. Peter describing the devil as a lion that seeks to devour us and roars. Jesus has silenced the roar of the devil. In fact, I don't know if you've ever put this together, but if you line up here in, cha in chapter 6, the story of Daniel with the story of Jesus in the gospel, you are going to notice some striking parallels. Because Daniel's emergence from the lion's den points us ahead to Christ rising out of the tomb. Daniel's resurrection here leads to the people praising Daniel's God. And we join their praise, don't we? As we lift high this same God who is ours in Jesus, the risen son. Daniel points to the greater victory, that Christ is victorious, that one day the fullness of his triumphant kingdom will be revealed. And this is important, that the, it's not about the moment. It's about the destination, where we're going to end up. Our integrity, my friends, is about having faith the victory will come. Our integrity is about having faith the victory will come, if not on this side of eternity, then on the other. So we've kind of looked at this in a couple of different ways, this idea, this characteristic of integrity. But the second part I said is, why is this characteristic? Talking about why this distinctive trait was so prominent. Why, how is it so central and so decisive in and through Daniel's life? And in order to appreciate this as we continue to look at chapter 6, something that if you haven't caught it before, I want to, I want to repeat. Integrity is not a quality we're born with. Only to hear that. Integrity is not a quality we're born with. Integrity is derived out of our relationship with God, our identity again in Christ. And, and this ought to make sense for us because given the impact of sin, which is undeniable in our world, given the impact of forgetting or rebelling against God as being our default, and because we forget or just actively rebel against God, we reflect that brokenness in our conscious or even our unconscious 
mistreatment of each other. I mean, that's what we see all around us. You cannot deny that there's something wrong with this world. And in the Christian community, we call it sin. Given the impact of sin, having integrity, being consistent in thinking, speaking, and acting honestly and righteously is not instinctive to us. It's not our default. Integrity, in other words, doesn't just happen. Integrity isn't something we can just turn on in a given moment or situation. It's not so all of a sudden you just suddenly find. Integrity is something that must become second nature to us. Integrity is something that we must manifest without even thinking about it because it's so deep-rooted in our moral muscle. So therefore, integrity is something we nurture. Integrity is a characteristic built through practices, habits that we develop in our relationship with the Lord. I've used this analogy before, but it works. If you learn the piano, but don't practice the piano, playing it, I mean, then when someone sits you down and says, play me something, you might plunk out a few notes, you might get lucky, but you're not gonna make any meaningful music. Likewise, my friends, it's in the small, seemingly insignificant decisions, seemingly insignificant decisions each day of how we spend our time, what we focus on, in those seemingly insignificant moments where we draw the line between right and wrong, good and evil, that shape and influence our reaction and our stamina when the real waves and the storms come. Integrity was so prominent, it was so central, it was so decisive in and through Daniel's life because Daniel cultivated his relationship with the Lord. Think about it. If Daniel had been a flaky follower, if Daniel had been a flaky follower, here sometimes, not others, engaged sometimes, not others, if Daniel had been a flaky follower, his integrity never would have gone the distance. Daniel nurtured his integrity from his youth. He was, by his mid-80s, predictably faithful to God. How do I know this? Well, first, in chapter 6, his enemies know it, right? That's exactly what they call out. Man, there's only one thing we got on this cat. He's predictably faithful to God. That's it. That's all we got. But even more than that, and this to me is the centerpiece of this chapter, we know that Daniel nurtured his integrity from his youth because we find it in verse 10. If you have your Bible open, Look at verse 10. I'm going to read it. There's six little, but, six little but powerful words here in this verse that describes how Daniel responded when the 30-day law was passed. It reads, Now when Daniel learned that the decree had been published, he went home to his upstairs room where the, and where the windows opened towards Jerusalem. Three times a day he got down on his knees and prayed, giving thanks to his God, just as he had done before. Those are the six little powerful words, just as he had done before. Do you see it? Beloved, Daniel's relationship with the Lord was not crisis-oriented. Daniel's actions here are not reactive. We're specifically told he isn't doing anything different now. Daniel is doing just as he had done before. And that tells us that Daniel maintained a consistent walk with God through a lifetime of practice, of establishing a rhythm of relationship with the Lord. Our habits, our practices matter. And there are many spiritual habits. Being in the Word, fasting, giving generously or tithing, serving others. There are many spiritual habits that we ought to practice so that our integrity in the Lord becomes second nature for us. But for our purposes this morning, let's start with prayer because prayer is a great place to begin. And apparently it's one of Daniel's best practices. 
Daniel knows that the only real safe place is in the will of God. In the glory of the Lord, his integrity is secure. But how does he abide there? Through prayer. And I want you again to remember, how old is Daniel? 85, probably? So for perhaps 85 years, think about that, praying three times a day was apparently Daniel's habit. 85 years. How's your prayer life? How's your prayer life? Now, as I ask that big, wide question, there's lots of answers you could give, but for many people, not all, but many people, when they hear that, how's your prayer life, one of the first things that comes to their mind is, I just can't find the time. Life's so busy, I mean, I'm going in so many different directions. Man, I want to pray. Man, I want to have that time with the Lord, but I just can't find the time. Awesome. Remember who Daniel is in this story. Remember who Daniel is. Don't miss this. He is one of the top three men in the Medo-Persian Empire, right? We all, we all can agree, right? If anyone wants to disagree, raise your hand. It being one of the top three men in the Medo-Persian Empire, we can all agree he had a plate of heavy responsibilities, right? His calendar was pretty, pretty packed, I would say. And yet, Daniel still made the time to pray three times a day. Because Daniel, despite his position like any other human being, and this applies to all of us, Daniel, like any other human being, knew if he didn't make the time, he wasn't going to find the time. I need you to hear that this morning, because we're all about finding the time. I just can't find the time to be in the Word. I just can't find the time to pray. I just can't find the time to tithe. I just can't find the time to serve others. If I could find the time, I would just build this relationship with the Lord. I just can't find the time. My friends, you are never going to find the time unless you make the time. You're never going to find it unless you make it. Daniel knew if he didn't make the time, it wouldn't happen. That habit, and that's the key, wouldn't stick his relationship with the Lord wouldn't deepen. And there's this parallel between our integrity and our intimacy with the Lord. If our integrity is shallow, our intimacy with the Lord is probably shallow. And that's why we see here Daniel, and this is a beautiful picture. I mean, you know, how low is our bar, right? I just want to try to pray once a day, right? I want to have one time. Daniel centered, intentionally centered his day in prayer, abiding in the Lord's presence. You see it here. He brought the day before, the, before God in the morning, looking ahead to what faced him and acknowledging his dependence upon God. In the afternoon, you know the afternoon, right? That's like the most crucial time. You, like me, is the afternoon that moment where all of a sudden you sort of had this, these plans for the day and the day seems to be getting away from you? That moment when you all of a sudden turn around and go, oh my gosh, where's the day gone? I was gonna do all this stuff. At that crucial time in the afternoon, at that time when the day seems to be getting away from us, Daniel refocuses his praise on the Lord in order to realign his agenda with God's presence and work. And then at the end of the day, third time, Daniel thanks God for his strength, confesses and embraces forgiveness, and celebrates the Lord's blessings throughout. And this is the part I want you to understand on the other side of 85, is once the habit was formed, I want you to get this about those six powerful little words. Once the habit was formed, prayer became natural to his day. He had no decision to make. And that's for many of us, the, start, the stumbling block, right? I gotta make the time, I gotta make the decision. Once that habit develops, he didn't have a decision to make, he just kept on doing what he had done before. In fact, prayer was so important, so crucial to Daniel that he was willing to die rather than give up his right to pray to God. My friends, is prayer a matter of life and death for you? 
Or let's push it further, what prayer represents. Is your relationship with God a matter of life and death for you? I think one of the reasons, in fact, I know it. One of, I know one of the reasons the lions of life, right, they overwhelm us is because we, te- they, is because we tend to compartmentalize our lives. I mean, we've drunk, drunk the Kool-Aid on that, right? We think life's all about compartmentalization. And so one of the reasons why the lions of life overwhelm us is we'll do stuff like this. We'll think, well, this is a medical issue. It's not a spiritual matter. Or we'll default to, oh, this is a work issue. This is a financial issue. This isn't a spiritual one. Beloved, remember where we started. Remember what integrity is all about. Integrity is about wholeness, right? Not fragmentation. For Daniel, everything was a spiritual matter and therefore a matter of prayer. And back to Paul, back to that letter in the Philippians, nice dovetail here. Paul, not in chapter two, but in chapter four, writes it this way. Do not be anxious about anything, but in, get ready, everything with thanksgiving present your requests to God. Everything, Paul writes, is affected by prayer. And we see it. For Daniel, an 85-year habit was hard to break, right? And Daniel's 85-year-old God-centered habit reinforced and strengthened his integrity so he was able to withstand the threat of lions that came near him. Can we just pause for a moment? How would your life change? How would your life change? How would your integrity change if you developed just this habit, just this habit of prayer? How would your life change? How would your integrity change? What if, just go with me here, what if, what if instead of panicking and raging against the lions of life, and we've all been there and done that, right? What if instead of panicking and raging against the lions of life, what if instead of complaining or criticizing about every little or big thing, and I've had my fill of that, have you? Instead of complaining or criticizing every little thing, what if instead of panicking and raging, complaining or criticizing, what if you opted to practice a new rhythm? to foster a different pattern, to learn a new habit? What if you took all that energy? And it takes a lot of energy, doesn't it? It takes a lot of energy to panic and rage. It takes a lot of time to criticize and complain. What if you took all that energy? What if you took all that time that you don't have to find? It's already there. What if you took all those words, because it doesn't happen in a vacuum, you're spewing out all kinds of other stuff. What if instead you took all that energy, all that time, all those words, and prayed? And engaged your God. Spoke to your God who wants to hear you speak all of it. Don't hold back. Your God who also wants you to listen. Imagine what might change. How you might be changed if you learned by God's grace, if you learned through that habit, God, the Spirit developing that habit, imagine what might change, how you might change if you learned to walk so closely with God that your natural, second nature reaction to tough times was to drop to your knees and pray. You know, one of the hard things about the book of Daniel is not what you think. It's not the stuff that's coming next, and we're going to get into some really deep stuff. One of the hardest things for me about Daniel is 
Daniel is so, you know, we learn about him as kids, like I said before, that, you know, we just, we can separate ourselves from Daniel, right? He almost becomes like this mythic superhero, right? We see him as some sort of larger-than-life hero who courageously and boldly makes a risky stand for his faith. And we sit there and we go, dude, man, he's awesome, but he's being and doing something that I never believe I could equal. I'm never going to be like that. But this morning, I hope and I pray as we've slowly really unpack this story, you've seen that Daniel is not some larger-than-life hero. Daniel is simply a man, flesh and blood, who's living out of his God-given integrity. Daniel's just a man who's facing and engaging every day, every moment, as the person God made him to be. And my friends in Christ, you and I, we are called and we are empowered to do no more but also to be no less. Daniel's story reminds us both of the price and the power of such integrity. It reminds us that both prosperity and adversity will challenge and tempt us. There will always be certain people prowling around looking to take advantage of us and to bring us down. Being true to who we are in Christ, maturing into and reflecting the fullness of the character of God and his kingdom doesn't come without a fight. But Daniel teaches us that our battle and our victory in the Lord begins long before we come to face the lions of life. Just as Daniel's integrity was forged and became second nature to him through a lifetime of pressing into the presence and will of God through practices like prayer, our ability to face human injustice, to silence the roar of death, and to thrive out of the love, mercy, and hope of the gospel is directly related to the consistency of our walk with God. Beloved, when God offers us eternal life in Christ, eternal life, he's not just offering, he's not just in this offer, he's not just referring to extending the length of your life. When God offers us eternal life in Christ, it also refers to the quality of your life. The Lord seeks to empower you to live a life of integrity. Our Father purposes to develop such a life in you through the time you spend with him. Spiritual habits like prayer, don't misunderstand me. These habits like prayer, reading our Bible, they're not what save us when the lions come. That's not what it's about. They reinforce to us and reflect to others the salvation, the victory that is already ours in Christ. The more we commit to the relationship with Jesus the more we become like Jesus. And the more we become like Jesus, the more we have to offer the world. Amen.